0: So are you a breakfast person? Now, I'm not talking about just eating good food in the morning. I'm talking about a breakfast for supper kind of person. You know, that's the good stuff. A couple of brothers about 11 years ago, John and Adam, they decided to open their own breakfast joint. They wanted to share the the joy of breakfast with others and really help people to enjoy breakfast. In fact, they've even put together a philosophy for what they do at their breakfast joint. The philosophy goes like this. Breakfast marks the beginning of a new day. We believe life is for living and each person and each day is worth celebrating. Our mantra, it only takes a moment to make a difference. (laughs) That's some serious breakfast philosophy, right? (laughs) Now, what I'm about to do is, is mean because I don't have samples to pass out, but I just want to read just a, a couple of, of menu items from their restaurant, okay? Um, here's the first one. And this is an actual picture of, of some of what I'm about to read. Chocolate pancakes filled with pomegranate chocolate fondue and topped with chocolate espresso crumble and sweet cream drizzle. <laughs> that was mean, wasn't it? <laughs> this one. Buttermilk pancakes topped with blueberry coulis, sweet cream, and almond streusel, surrounding a center of lemony cream cheese filling. (laughs) Who wants to eat at a place like that? I just want to read the menu. I'm, I'm fine. Now, of course, most importantly, on the menu, there is also bacon, and there's also pulled pork. That's my kind of breakfast place, right? Barbecue and bacon right there on the breakfast menu. So what did John and Adam call their breakfast joint? Well, they call it Snooze. I love that name. <laughs> this is great. And, and when you look through their menu, and you look at all the things that they offer, they're given a whole new meaning to the idea of hitting the snooze in the morning, because I would definitely uh, be hitting the snooze. But here's, here's the bad thing. If you want to enjoy their stuff, you have to drive all the way out to Gilbert, Arizona, not, not South Carolina. <laughs> Um, (laughs) yeah, they, they started in Denver, Colorado, and they have a bunch of locations, but they're only in Colorado, California, Arizona, and Texas. So that's kind of the bummer, but, but you know, it's, it's still fun to plan and think about, you know, where you'll go when, when you head West. I want you to listen to their mantra one more time though. It only takes a moment to make a difference. That's true for more than breakfast, right? It only takes a a moment to make a difference. There is one moment in history that has made a huge difference in my life and in your life and in the life of every single person who has ever existed and every single person who will ever exist. It is a moment that many people try to hit the snooze button on. They just try to to ignore it and act like it's not there and just roll over and and go on with life. But you can't. This is one of those moments that there is no person anywhere who gets to avoid what happened in this moment. You have to deal with this moment. So what kind of moment are we talking about? Well, we're going to find out this morning again looking at Genesis chapter 3. Looking at this story of what God is doing in the very early days of life. Listen to Genesis 3 beginning with verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It wasn't Ten Commandments, it wasn't even like a whole Bible full of instructions for life and salvation. It was just the one rule, just just the one don't eat from that tree. But the one rule was one too many for the first man and for the first woman. The woman, she listened to the, the crafty lies, the crafty questions that the enemy gave through the serpent. And she became convinced in her heart that God was holding out on them. That God was preventing them from, from finding wisdom, preventing them from finding pleasure, from preventing them from having fun. And so she ignored the one rule, and she took and ate of the tree. And then, with absolutely no backbone and a desire to be his own king, the man could not get the fruit out of her hand fast enough, and he also took of the tree, and he ate. Author and counselor David Pallison says this, We humans don't only know things, but we weigh the things we know. We are meant to love what is true, good, and beautiful, and to hate what is false, wrong, and shameful. And then he says this. When the serpent told lies, their consciences should have said, that is a lie. That's wrong and deadly. But that's not what happened, is it? No, they listened to the promise, the the promise that they could be their own little gods if they would just... Take of, of this tree and eat. But that promise, that promise was actually a bold face lie. And so they, they took the bait. They they believed in the lie instead of honoring and affirming the one who fearfully and wonderfully made them, the one who gave them a perfect paradise to live in. In other words, they rejected God. They rejected God's authority, they rejected His command, they rejected His grace, they rejected His love. And, and after they rejected Him, something happened. Something they had never experienced before. They, they suddenly were confused. They, they were rattled. Their, their stomach started turning a little bit, and, and they knew something was terribly wrong. They, they started feeling threatened. They thought they were in danger, and they didn't even know what that was. So why did these things happen? Why did all these emotional and physical realities begin to happen? But Because they they ate from the tree. See, for the first time in their life, they felt shame. Shame. Something they had never experienced before. Something they were not familiar with. And what did they do with their shame? Well, here's what they didn't do. They did not run to God for help. They didn't. They, they didn't turn to God and ask for help. They took their shame and they kept marching in their own independence. They kept communicating to themselves that, that they were okay. But even worse, according to the scriptures, they, they didn't run to God and they tried to cover up their shame. They made the, the first eco organic green clothing that's ever been made. And they covered themselves up. They, they tried to cover their sin, they tried to cover their shame. They knew they had rejected God. They knew they had rejected God's ways. They knew that something was terribly wrong, but their response was not to turn to God. Their response was to turn to themselves. They turned inward. They didn't think about what it meant to love God first and most. They didn't think about what it meant to love one another. They they didn't think about how they could help one another. They just turned inward. They turned away from God, and they they kept moving toward an independent lifestyle because they were convinced that the more independent they were, the more personal happiness they would find. In other words, what they started doing was looking out for number one. Any part of that sound familiar to any of us? What else did they do with their shame? Listen again to verse 8. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden that they hid, why would they hid? why would they hide? I mean, they had never done anything like this before. Well, suddenly, that turning in their stomach, they were afraid of God, not in fear of God, not in fear of his awesomeness, not in, in fear of who he was, but they were actually afraid of God. why they' would never been afraid of God before, where well, they were afraid. Because they ate from the tree. They sinned. They ignored God's instruction. They believe sin's lie of pleasure instead of believing the Lord of promise. And here's the thing. We inherited that lie from them. Pastor and author Scott Saul says this. Our first parents set the tone for the rest of us. Ever since Eden, every man, woman, and child has been facing a hidden battle with shame. The vague sense there's something deeply wrong with us compels us to hide, blame, and run for cover. Left to ourselves, we are helplessly and restlessly turned inward. When we turn inward, instead of turning Godward, we will immediately or eventually, or ultimately, grow restless. Our emotions, our spiritual life will be dominated, overwhelmed, defined by a restless misery, a restless apathy, a restless fear, a restless worry, restless stubbornness, restless pride. And that type of restlessness that that existence in restlessness, it's a dead end on a cul-de-sac of helplessness. We sin, we dishonor God, we feel the shame, and we move toward restlessness, and it leads toward helplessness. We, we just feel helpless in our thoughts and our attitudes. We, we will feel helpless because nothing we do ever works. And that restless, helpless reality will never go away if we do not have confidence that death only has a sting. And see, there's no way that we will have confidence that death is not the real and final end, that death only has a sting if we look inward. The only way we can have confidence that death is not the end is by looking outward. You see, sin's lie of pleasure, it starts on the inside of us and then it works all the way through every part of our lives. But the difference is the promise of God in and through Jesus Christ, it begins outside of us. The truth of the promise of the gospel begins beyond us. Really, it begins before the foundations of the world. And then we see it in the manger, and we see it on the cross, and and it comes from the empty tomb. And by faith, through the work of the Holy Spirit, that that promise, it makes its way inside of us. And we become convinced that everything about God's promise is not only true and real, but we become convinced that it has been purchased perfectly and guaranteed by the very blood of Jesus Christ. Outward to inward. And then it becomes the definitive part of our existence. But there are many people that will say that the promises of God, that the events of the garden, and that the gospel itself is is nothing but a bunch of fairy tales. Stephen Hawking is a theoretical physicist. He has made uh, amazing pioneering contributions in the world of, of physics and astronomy and math, among other subjects. The disease ALS has been paralyzing his body for decades, and now his only way of communicating is through one cheek muscle and really an amazing speech-generating machine. Six years ago, he said this, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken-down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Now, I'm a simple boy from South Carolina. Average intelligence, mostly I probably can't pronounce or spell the words that Dr. Hawking uses on a daily basis, so I realize I'm not in the same league. However, because of the historical and biblical truth about Jesus of Nazareth, and because of the work of the Holy Spirit in and around that truth, I would offer a, a gracious response to those who believe that God and his ways are nothing more than a, a fairy story. And I would break it down maybe in three questions. Is it possible that a person's disregard for the one true sovereign God might stop working one day? That that disregard might, might fail? Is it possible that there is a heaven and there is an afterlife and that it is owned by the one true sovereign God? And is it possible that the gospel of Jesus Christ is an everlasting truth that has been embraced by people who are no longer afraid of the light? Or, in other words, if the notion is that people only follow Jesus because they're afraid of the dark. Would it not at least be possible that people who reject Jesus reject Him because they are afraid of His light? The light of the gospel. Maybe one of the most famous verses in all the Bible is, is John 3.16, for, for God so loved the world that He gave his, his one and only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting eternal life. Two sentences later, Jesus says this, John 3, 18. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Judged already. What what does that mean? Well, Jesus tells us. Look at verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved The darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Isn't that that strange? Why would someone love evil? Why would someone love darkness? Well, Jesus tells us, verse 20. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Did you catch that? See, we're, we're not afraid of the dark. We're afraid of the light. We're not afraid of, of the dark. We're, we're afraid of what the light of the gospel will do to us. And where do we get that from? Well, we inherited it from the garden. You see, the first man and the first woman, they, they made their eco-clothing. They, they tried to cover up their sin. They tried to cover up their shame. They tried to hide from God. There's one problem with that. God is like the all-time quarterback of of hide-and-seek. He never, ever, ever loses. (laughs) Ever. He sees everything. He knows everything. You can't hide from God. But That's not to scare you. That's a fact. You cannot hide from God. It is not possible. So what does the Lord do? Listen to verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? So if God knows everything, then why would he ask the man where he is? I mean, God, God knows exactly where he is. So, so what's he doing? Is he trying to be that kind of rude, obnoxious, mean father? You know? Is he playing that role? Boy, I know you in there. You better come on out here and get what's coming to you. We don't see that. We don't see that anywhere. There's no indication or evidence that's what God's doing. Don't be confused, though. God is holy, and he is just, and he is pure, and he will deal with their disobedience. They will be punished. But there's no sign here that God is screaming mad. There's no sign that he's coming shouting threats at them. So why does he ask? Why does he say, where are you? Is he being some kind of you know, sarcastic gardener? You know, just messing with the man, even though he knows where he is? I'm just going to see what he says. No. In fact, the very picture of God approaching the man reveals that, that God is very graciously allowing the man an opportunity to come clean and repent. He's given him an, an opportunity to, to step into the light. And to receive grace and forgiveness. So, how does the man respond? Listen to verse 10. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. Again, we have no indication that he has ever done this before. No indication that he's ever had to hide from God before. So so what changed? He ate from the tree. Sin entered the world. Shame entered the world. And that's what sin does to my life, and that's what sin does to your life. It turns everything upside down. See, according to what we read in the Scriptures, the Bible says the man and the woman were created in the image of God. Therefore, by their very nature, they were designed to worship God, to enjoy God, and to be near to God. But sin messed all of that up. It turned everything upside down. And it sent them running to hide in the bushes. Sin will destroy our lives. Sin will mess up everything. It will turn everything upside down. Years later, their son was believing the same lie. Their their son was convinced that, that his pleasure, that his fun, that what he wanted was much more important than honoring and affirming God. And this is what the Lord said to him. Genesis 4-7. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. That is not some cute line from an ancient story. That warning is still true today. Sin is is crouching at the door. It's, It's ready to pounce. It's ready to attack. It is out to get you. It's just waiting for you to, to put a little crack in the door. And so the, the sound bite that is echoing from the garden to us today has, has never changed. Run away from that tree and don't leave your door cracked. A few thousand years after this, the Lord explained to Moses what his character was like, his, his character that never changes. Exodus 34 verse 6, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. The compassion, the grace that God has as the definition of his character, that, that slow crawl to anger, it was first given to the man. God was gracious. He was compassionate to him. And contrary to what you may hear in modern accusations, contrary to what you may hear in historic accusations, God is still gracious and he is still compassionate. See, everything that we see about sin is this. Sin's desire is to destroy you. And God's desire is to give you life. And not just any life, but life more abundant and free. So what did God say back to the man? Look at verse 11. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, did God really know who told him? Yeah, he, he knew exactly who told him. Did God really not know that he had eaten from the tree? Yeah, God had already seen the bite mark on the fruit. God, God knew what was going on. So, so why is he asking? Again, is he, is he trying to mess with the man? No, he's not. Again, God is extending this opportunity for the man to come clean, for him to repent, for him to find grace and forgiveness. Is God extending that opportunity to you today? Is there some sin in your life that it's been brought to your attention but but rather than running to the Lord, rather than receiving grace and forgiveness, you are hiding out at home. You're hiding out at work. You're hiding out at school. You're hiding out in the gym, or you're hiding out at the spa. You're hiding out at the mall. You're hiding out at the golf course. You're hiding out at the bar. You're hiding out at the motel. Maybe you're even hiding out in the church. You know, just kind of going through the motions and and just making sure that nobody knows about your sin, especially trying to hide from God. Here's the thing about trying to hide from the Lord. Here's the thing about about trying to cover up your sin. It always leads to something else. And what is that something else? Listen to verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, And I ate. When you try to run and hide from God, which is impossible, when you try to cover up your sin, which also is impossible, it's not hard to jump from the shame train to the blame train. It happens really, really quickly. The man, he didn't step into the light, he didn't repent, he blamed the woman. And really he, he blamed God, right? God, I mean, everything out here in the garden was fine until you gave me that woman, you know. Everything was was good. You should go talk to her, God. Well, the Lord is going to speak to her, but but men, I, I want you to, to not miss this picture. For for us men, I, I want us to, to understand when it comes to your life, when it comes to your sin, when it comes to your leadership. Don't miss this question that I'm about to give us. And that question is this. Who did God go to first? Men, let us not run from our responsibility. And let us not run from God. That is a fool's errand. So God does turn to the woman in verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Well, she jumped on the blame train for sure, but, but at least she blamed the enemy instead of blaming God. You know, I mean, she, she at least started stepping in the right direction. You know, and, and she did not, you know, pass the buck on to the man the way he passed the buck on to her. So, so at least she's kind of in the right ballpark, but in essence, she's, she's really not in the right ballpark, right? Because the truth of the matter is she did not repent either. So, so what? what? What does this ancient moment in a garden have to do with us? Why does it matter? Well, why does it matter that they were ashamed? Well, why does it matter that they made clothes out of fig leaves? Well, why does it matter that they were blaming each other and, and blaming the enemy for what they had done? Well, outside of the person and the work of Jesus Christ on this earth, and really we might say because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ on this earth, this moment in history is is the most pivotal moment in history. And the reality is every question and every comment and and every detail and every philosophy and every theory that is out there on Genesis chapter 3, everything that's out there about what happened with the man and the woman and the serpent, will not be answered in, in one sermon and couldn't be answered in a, in a million sermons. And so what I want to do is, is just let you know there's, there's way too much to cover. And so I want to be sure at least we get one thing. One thing out of this moment. One thing out of this defining moment that we cannot run away from. One reason that all of this shame and all of this sin and all of this blame matters in your life and in my life. And that one thing goes like this. Jeff Thomas writes, Until you take responsibility for your own life and confess your own sin, there can be no healing. Until you take responsibility for your own life and confess your own sin, there can be no healing. No healing. No real help. No real hope. None. Running hiding, rebelling, it always ends up with restless misery. And you always are restless in your misery with sin crouching at your door. I know what you're thinking. Man, I'm glad I rolled into church today. Man, thanks for, thanks for that depressing news, preacher. So is there any good news here? Yes. There is good, super, fantastic, wonderful news here and it was all the way back in verse 9 then the Lord God called to the man God was dishonored God was rejected by their actions and their attitudes God was mocked really he was hated and yet we don't find God disappearing into a castle tower. We don't find God running into the garden screaming and shouting and threatening with anger. We don't find God running into the garden rejecting them. In the cool of the day, we find God coming to pursue them. Pursue them with grace. Pursue them with forgiveness. And friend, I want you to know that that God, through His only begotten Son, is still pursuing. He might be pursuing you this morning. I love how Charles Wesley wrote about the beauty of the only begotten Son years ago. He left His Father's throne above so free, so infinite His grace. He emptied Himself of all but love And bled for Adam's restless, helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free. Why? For oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love. How can it be that that thou, my God, has, has died for me? Amazing love, knowing that I reject you and dishonor you and don't affirm you, yet still you come pursuing me with grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. Oh, friend, let us look at the garden and not run and hide. Let us look at the garden and not, and not foolishly try to cover our sin, but let us see the God of the universe pursuing us through his Son. And let us come to Jesus. And let us come to Jesus. And over and over again, let us come to Jesus and live. Let us come to Jesus and live.